The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. That was definitely one of the most bizarre introductions I've ever received, so thank you, Dean, for that. <clears throat> How many of you like to read? Yeah, I, I'm, I probably shouldn't admit this, but things have already been admitted about me this morning, so I might as well go for it. But one of my love for reading probably can be directly attributed to a series of books that I used to read and probably actually still have on my shelf at home, Goosebumps. You remember these? How many of you read these? Okay. Reader beware, you're in for a scare, you know. Uh, the covers were spooky, the stories, you know, and plots were kind of absurd most of the time. Uh, but everybody knows that the best part of a Goosebumps book is the twist ending. Every book ends with a twist. Every book ends with a surprise. You, you think the protagonist has gotten out of danger, and then right at the very end, boom, another haunted mask. Bam, Slappy the dummy starts talking again, whatever. Every story ends with a twist. In fact, every chapter of every story ends with a bit of a twist or a surprise. Uh, the author, R.L. Stein, once wrote in his autobiography, which I may or may not have also read, uh, that he wanted every chapter to end with some kind of a surprise to keep his readers reading. Now, most of the time, those surprises uh, were kind of cheap, weren't they? A cold, clammy hand settled down on Evan's neck, and then the next chapter it turns out to be like his sister or something like that. Like, okay. When I was a little older, though, I started graduating from Goosebumps, and I discovered a guy named Richard Matheson, famous sci-fi author. Some of you know who Richard Matheson is without knowing who Richard Matheson is because you've read or you've seen his stuff. Uh, how many of you have seen any of the original Twilight Zone episodes? Yeah, he was, uh, uh, many of his short stories, over a dozen of his short stories were adapted into Twilight Zone episodes, and he even wrote several of the episodes as well. Uh, some of the classics, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and The Invaders and, and that one where that old woman gets the call from the grave. Uh, Matheson was an expert at short stories and twist endings. Unlike R.L. Stein. His endings and his twists all felt earned. You read them and you feel like, I should have seen that coming, but, but I didn't, and that's why it was so good. They make sense, they fit, and it gives you that gut punch in the end, and then you immediately want to go and read some more of what you just read. Matheson was a king of short stories with twist endings. But Arl Stein and Richard Matheson have nothing on the prophet Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 5 this morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is going to tell us a short story in song format. And just like the best short story authors of old, he has the ability to draw us in, get us engaged, and then he delivers a show-stopping punch in the gut right at the very end of this song. So let's open our Bibles, Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to do most of this chapter. We'll have to move a little bit quicker towards the end for time, but we're going to start in verse 1, Isaiah 5.1. The prophet writes, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So Isaiah is singing a song that really tells a story. 
His audience is Judah, the southern part of Israel. By this time, Israel has been not just split, but the northern part, most of them exiled. And Isaiah is speaking to that southern part, Jerusalem, Judah, and he begins his song with a familiar tune, at least with some familiar words. If you've read any of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, maybe this sounds a little Song of Songs-ish to you, the beginning of this. In fact, if you read this in Hebrew, it does indeed sound like a song because it is a song. The opening line, Kerem Hayalididi, Bekeren Ben Shemen. Isaiah paints this picture, very, very beautiful picture. Take Hebrew with me. You can learn how to do that. It's great. Um, Focus, will you? This is why I'm not going to have time. You keep laughing. So Isaiah paints this beautiful picture of this very careful gardener. He, he picks the best, most fertile hill he can find. He takes care to dig out the ground around it, removes any stones. He plants the best vine that he can find available, builds a tower to keep watch over it, makes sure predators and enemies don't sabotage his work, builds a wine vat in anticipation of that harvest. And when the day has finally arrived to harvest those grapes, what does he find? The ESV here translates it, wild grapes. Literally, the word is is something like stinking things. Stink fruit is what he finds. He comes out expecting to see this bountiful harvest of, of ripe, juicy grapes. And what does he get instead? He gets stink fruit. Now, if you've ever planted something and, and tended to it and harvested it, you know that that anticipation builds and builds and builds. And you just want that good feeling of great fruit at the end. I haven't ever attempted to grow grapes, but I'm told that it's very difficult. I could hardly grow my hair, never mind grapes. Uh, and it's, it's quite the challenge to grow them. It takes a lot of nurturing, especially the first year that they're planted. You've got to tend to the vine. You've got to make sure that it's growing in the right direction. You've got to prune it. It takes a lot of care. Imagine all that work and then the disappointment of coming out and finding out it's not even producing grapes, but it's producing stink fruit. So now the audience is hooked. You're engaged in this story. You're hearing this song. We're angry on behalf of the farmer. And Isaiah goes on to continue this story in verses three and four. And he says, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, what did it it yield? Wild grapes. So now Isaiah continues to really draw in his audience. He he takes on the identity of that beloved farmer. What more could I have done, he says. I did everything that I should have done to make that vine grow. I planted it in the best soil. I gave it all my attention. I gave it the best vine. I, I nurtured it to take care of it. I watered it. I did everything there was to do for this thing. And what did I get? Stink fruit. And Isaiah asked the audience for a response. He says, judge between me and my vineyard. Whose fault is it that these grapes didn't grow? I can imagine Isaiah's listeners shouting back to him, the vine. It was the vine's fault that it didn't grow. Isaiah asks, what did I do wrong? And, And the audience shouts, nothing. You did nothing wrong. You did everything right. He's got them hooked. So Isaiah tells him what he's gonna do about these stinking grapes. Verses five and six. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. 
I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they will rain no rain upon it. I remember when I was a kid, I was in second grade and my second grade teacher did one of those projects with me. Maybe you've done something like this where she gives a little Dixie cup and put soil in it, and then you take the sunflower seed and you put it in the soil and you have to like make it grow. Right? You put it by the ledge and every day you come in, you have to do, you water it and whatever, and, and it grows. And once it sprouted, we took that little sunflower plant, everyone took theirs home with them, and they were supposed to plant it in their garden and watch it grow throughout the summer. Well, I, I got home and I took my little sunflower and I planted it and, and it withered and died. And I got angry. I hulked out on that plant. I remember grabbing it, ripping it out, tearing it in two, throwing it across the yard. I was furious that that little bugger of a, of a sprout did not grow. I might have had an anger problem when I was a kid. I'm not sure. <laughs> now, my, my kind and loving mother came by, and she said, Brian, did you water your plant? Whoops. Apparently, it was not the plant's fault. It was my fault in that case. Now, for Isaiah, he goes to town on this vineyard because... It is the vineyard's fault. It's not his. He watered it. He did everything he could do to care for and nurture this plant, and it produced stinking, worthless fruit for him. So he tears down the hedges that he built. He burns up the field. He, he lets the thorns and the thistles grow. He goes full-on tantrum against this vineyard. But notice the last line here. Strangely enough, look at what he says in, at the last line in verse 6. He says, I will also command the clouds that they will rain no rain upon it. What kind of vine keeper controls the clouds? Up until this point, this story was totally realistic. It was a story of a farmer who couldn't get his crops to grow. Isaiah the prophet was the beloved farmer. But when you get to the very end of verse 6, you realize that Isaiah the beloved farmer was really just representing God. God is the vine keeper in this story. And God did everything he could to get this vine to produce something. And when it didn't grow, God tore it down and even stopped the rain from falling upon it in judgment. Do you sense the twist coming? And up until now, I can imagine the people of Judah and Jerusalem following along and agreeing with this whole illustration. They're, they're on board with the wrath of the farmer. Tear down that vine. Destroy that field. It's not the farmer's fault. It's, it's the vine's fault. And then Isaiah drops the hammer, gives a little hint at the end of verse 6 of where this is going, and then the big reveal comes in verse 7. He says, For the, vine, the vineyard is Yahweh of hosts, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And you can't see it here in the English, but the Hebrew then says, boom, roasted at the very end there. Isaiah draws back the curtain and reveals that, yes, indeed, the beloved farmer is God. And yet the vine, the vine is God's people. The vine is Isaiah's audience. God cultivated Judah God gave Judah and Israel the best land, the best chance at spiritual growth. He gave them prophets and priests to guide them. He watered them with his word. He provided everything they needed for spiritual growth. And when the day came for God to look for good fruit from that, he got stink fruit. Look for justice, 
but instead bloodshed. He listened for righteousness, but instead he heard an outcry. In the Hebrew text, those words actually rhyme with each other. Justice rhymes with bloodshed. Righteousness rhymes with outcry. He looked for mishpat, for justice, but instead he saw mishpach, bloodshed. He looked for tzedakah, for righteousness, but instead tzedakah, an outcry. One author I read tried to pick up that rhyme by saying it like this. He looked for order, but what he saw was murder. He looked for right, but what he heard was the cry of fright. Karen University, I know that we are not the Israel of the Old Testament, but we are a greenhouse here, are we not? There will never be, for the vast majority of you, there will never be a time in your life when you are surrounded by such a greenhouse of faith as the next couple of years that you are here. You have other students sitting next to you that are loving the Lord and demonstrating their faith, living it out day by day. You have professors who are committed to teach the word of God in whatever class that you're in, teaching you the word of God through that discipline. Men and women in student life committed to your spiritual growth. Chapel several times a week where you can come together and worship the great God that we serve. You will never be in this environment again. What will you produce? When you walk across that stage a couple years from now or a couple months from now for some of you, what will you produce? Good fruit or stink fruit? At some point, we're going to look back as your leaders, professors, staff members, and we're going to say, we have done everything we can to cultivate for you a spiritual greenhouse here. Will the vine yield fruit? That's up to you. In Israel, God looked upon what was going on and he saw bloodshed. He heard the cries of oppressed people. And because of it, God determined to tear down his vineyard. Now, I'm not trying to draw too closely an analogy here by saying that God's threatening to tear down Karen University or anything like that. But what I'm saying is I think there are some interesting parallels here, don't you? What are you going to do about it? Now, what we see in the rest of this chapter is that God delivers a series of woes upon Israel. Six woes, six times he says, woe, 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 over and over. A woe is a cry of lament, and it's also a cry of judgment. It's the kind of cry that you might hear next to a casket at a funeral home for someone that loved the person that's in that casket. It's the kind of cry that you might hear of uh, the noise that you make when, when destruction is on the horizon coming towards you. It's the mix of a sound of mourning, and a sound of judgment. Six woes upon Judah, and each woe is followed by a declaration of judgment. Now, why is God angry at this vineyard? It's not just for the bloodshed, and it's not just for the outcry that's happening in the, in the community. The first couple woes, verses 8 to 14, um, we're going to move past those fairly quickly. They wouldn't give me a full hour of chapel because apparently you have class today, so I'll have to summarize this part for you. The first two woes address greedy, wealthy people, and wealthy, drunk people. And God promises to judge them by removing them from the land, removing their wealth, and sending them into exile. But what I really want to hone in on here is Isaiah's short little interlude in verses 15 to 17. Here he sings a familiar song. Look at verses 15 to 17. He says, Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. 
But Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. These are familiar words. If you've been reading the book of Isaiah, you would, you would recognize these words from chapter 2. The passage goes back to chapter 2 and slightly modifies some of Isaiah's language there. These woes are all about God humbling the proud and, and exalting those who are already humble. And notice too how Isaiah shows that the failed expectations of the Israelites are fulfilled in the character of God. That's what I want to point us to in this passage. Chapter 5, verse 7, the verse that we just read a few minutes ago, God said, I look for justice, but behold, bloodshed. I look for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God looks for justice, God looks for righteousness, but all he sees is wickedness. But look at how Isaiah describes God here in verse 16. He says, Yahweh of hosts is exalted in what? In justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in what? In righteousness. The moral character that the Israelites could not produce for themselves, God is. God is justice. God is righteousness. What they could not do for themselves, God steps in the picture and says, I am these things. And this, I think, is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? The great miracle of the cross of Jesus Christ is that he lived that perfect life, demonstrated his holy righteousness by means of perfect morality, and died a sinless death on our behalf. Think of the familiar verses of the New Testament, like 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. God looked at humanity searching for justice, searching for righteousness, but instead he found bloodshed, he found an outcry, he found greed, he found drunkenness, and knowing the depth of our sin, Jesus still took that sin upon himself on our behalf. The righteous for the unrighteous. We gave him our sin, he gave us his righteousness. That is the power and the beauty of the gospel. Last night I was wrestling with my children. My three-year-old um, was attacking my nine-year-old, and, and my nine-year-old got the best of him and pinched the three-year-old's finger in something. But he comes running up to me. His name is Adam. And Adam comes run, running up to me, crying his eyes out. He's got a boo-boo. Isn't that sad? I told him to suck it up. You're wrestling. Move on with your life, kid. Well, apparently that wasn't enough. So he comes up and he, you know, he's still holding it, crying and crying. And my wife says, do something about it. Like, help the kid, you know? I said, all right. So I reached out my hand and I grabbed his boo-boo and I took it off and put it on my hand and said, ah! And he started laughing. And then he liked that idea, so he took it off my hand, and he threw it at his other brother, and he screamed. And then his brother took it off and threw it at my wife, and she played along and screamed, and so on. It passed around the house. Next thing you know, the boo-boo's all gone. He's not worried about it anymore. We're back to fighting. It's, it's the beauty of the gospel. I thought of this as I'm doing it, and I'm realizing I, I wish I really could at times, you know, take that injury, put it upon myself. Take that problem and, and I'll take it instead of you. And that is what Christ has done. 
That is the gospel, what God has done for you. That's, it's the hints of it that we could see right here. God couldn't find justice. He couldn't find righteousness. So God himself will be Israel's justice and righteousness. Take their sin for himself and give them himself. That's what Christ has done for you. So this text glimpses into that gospel. Now, after that brief interlude, Isaiah continues his woes upon Jerusalem, verses 18 to 23. And he picks up the pace a little bit more here. He he goes four woes into six verses. So um, let's read them. And I think there's some stuff here that that will catch our attention as well. Verse 18. He says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Now just pausing there for a moment. Verse 19 really caught my attention too. Verse 19 are the words of the sinners. The words of the Israelites. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. They're talking about God here. They're talking to Isaiah about God. Let God be quick. Let God hurry up and do something that we might see it with our own eyes. Now, this is a defiant challenge based on what God said he would do. God said, I'm coming to judge Israel. The people were called to repent before that judgment came. And before repenting, instead of repenting, the people shake their fist at God and they said, well, then let God hurry up and give us that judgment. We're not going to believe that God's going to do this until we see it with our own eyes. The arrogance of these people are just overwhelming. They taunt God. Imagine a a toddler throws a fit, makes a mess of his room and his bedroom. Several times his mother comes in and warns him, clean it up, clean it up, and he just keeps refusing. And you know what the next step is, right? Mom comes in and says, when your father comes home, he is going to spank your little butt if you don't get this room cleaned up. Now imagine that kid shaking his chubby little fist and saying, let him come. Call him. Tell him to hurry up. I'm not going to believe it till I see the belt in his hands that he's going to do this. Come on, I'll tell him what's right and wrong, woman. Let's go. The Israelites hear this judgment and they shake their little chubby fist at God and dare him, come faster. Come faster. Bring it on. And Isaiah says of them in verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. I can't think of more appropriate verses that are an indictment on our own culture and times than these. We are a nation who calls evil good and good evil. We we have twisted God's standard of sexuality with our own standards. We have replaced God's definition of gender with our own ideas. We have exchanged the truth of God's word for a, a twisted version of what is good and right. Our culture has become experts at reversing the standard of morality, calling right wrong and wrong right. Karen, how do we know what is true and what is right? How do we know what is moral? How can we tell the difference between right and wrong when the culture is constantly changing that for us? 
Well, the answer is stop looking at the culture for that definition of morality. God is perfectly moral, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. You look at the words that he has given us and you will know what is right or wrong. Psalm 119 says, the sum of your word, God, is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God has set the standard of morality for us. He has told us what is right and wrong. It does not change, and we do not have the authority to replace it. Well, what happens when we do exchange or try to exchange the truth of God's word with our own standards? The answer is we get exactly what we want. Look at the final judgment that God delivers to Israel, verses 24 to 30. He says, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of Yahweh of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of Yahweh was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, and his hand is still stretched out. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, their wheels like the whirlwind, their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey, they carry it off and, and none can rescue. They will growl over on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds." What terrible judgment. Notice the end of verse 24. They've rejected the law of the Lord. They've despised the word of his Holy One. They've rejected God's word and they've exchanged the standard of what is right for what is wrong as revealed in the word of God. Now, what's really interesting to me here is they get exactly what they wanted. Look again at verse 19 who said, let them be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. This is them challenging God, right? Remember those words? Come on, let him be quick. Let, him, let us see his work. Now compare that to verse 26. Behold, quickly, speedily, they come. They asked for speed of judgment, and God gave them exactly what they asked for. And the foreign invaders that will come and invade are nothing short of a nightmare. They're practically invincible. They don't get tired. They don't sleep. Their, their uniforms don't rip. Their arrows are sharp. Their horses are fast. And when they invade Israel, their terror is extreme. But Israel's gotten exactly what they deserve, what exactly they've asked for. Again, end of verse 30. Very end of the verse. Last verse of this passage. If one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. Remember what the Israelites said of God in verse 20? Or God said of them? He said, these are the people who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And now as a result, God says, you want to exchange light for darkness? Fine, I'll do it for you. Your land will be dark. The sun will be blotted out and judgment will come. It's a poetic way of saying that those who dwell in their sin will get exactly what that sin deserves. They will get perfect justice from a perfectly just God. And that's it. Isaiah doesn't end this chapter with a word of hope 
doesn't look forward to the coming Messiah and say everything's going to be right one day. He doesn't offer any hope for Jerusalem. He gives a lovely song about a vineyard. Six woes, a couple statements of judgment, the end, let's pray. Or does he? Because keep in mind, he's giving this judgment, giving these words, giving this prophecy before it happens. Which means implied in this judgment is the opportunity for Israel to respond in repentance. It's a way of saying, Israel, what are you going to do about it? You are that vine. This destruction's coming. God will judge sin as it deserves. What are you going to do about it? This is a call for Israel to reform their lives in the spiritual greenhouse that God has put them in before it is too late. Karen University, I would, I would urge you to listen to the words of Isaiah 5. God takes sin seriously. God will judge sin with perfect justice, but it is not too late for you to draw near to God. It's not too late for you to submit to Jesus Christ in faith, to ask the Lord to forgive the time that you have wasted and to place your trust in him. God will judge sin. If you're born again in Jesus Christ, that judgment has already been satisfied. But sin will get what it deserves. My prayer is that we will be a university and a people known for standing on the perfect morality of God's word, following his standard for what is right and wrong, and exchanging our stink fruit for his righteousness and his justice. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would convict the hearts that need convicting. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to repent of the sin that so easily entangles. Lord, we know that you are perfectly just and moral and right. And I submit myself to you, Lord, knowing that I am not. But we thank you for what Christ has done on our behalf. Let us live in accordance with it. And Lord, I pray for these students as they leave this university whether it's this semester, next semester, a couple years from now, I pray that they would leave this greenhouse yielding great fruit for your kingdom. Eternal fruit, righteous fruit, fruit that would glorify you and please the one who has kept this vine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless.